You know, if you're ever wondering, is, does the Bible actually at its center possess Christ? Go to passages like Zechariah 3, where that's exactly what we're going to find as we open the text this morning. As we do that, let's ask for help. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that here we find the words of life. Because as we go through life, week to week, Monday through Saturday, and even as we leave here on Sunday, we hear these competing voices shouting at us all around us, God, and um, we can be left disappointed, disillusioned, despondent, wondering how you might meet us in the midst of our circumstances, but what we pray, God, is that um, in the midst of that, you would do a mighty work. What we pray is that in the midst of that, you'd cause our hearts to say, where else would we go for the words of life? And so, uh, Spirit, speak to us this morning. Help us, help us to see, to understand our story, what it is that you've done for us. Uh, Lord, point us to Jesus. I pray that you would revive in us uh, the joy of our salvation. Renew us by your Spirit. Cast us not from your presence. Restore to us the joy of life with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, you know, the Bible often uses language or imagery, as we've seen before at GLC, of a courtroom. Legal language, legal imagery, in order to help us understand better what this good news is that the, that the Bible really has at, at its center, right? Help us to understand it and apply it. And, you know, we've seen this before at Gospel Life Church. We saw throughout Genesis these Old Testament narratives that every now and again were structured as a courtroom drama. The psalmist uses language oftentimes to depict legal language, to depict the feeling of a courtroom. The Apostle Paul uses legal language to describe the central problem with the human heart and what God sets out to do for a broken people, right? And we see this here too. And I, I, um, I think together we could say it's, it's one of the more intriguing pictures of what God has done for his people. Why is it so intriguing? To answer that question, I think we start by again asking, you know, what, makes, what is it that makes courtroom dramas in general, so intriguing for people to read and to watch. You know, across cultures, it's actually quite true. Um, and even generationally, it's quite true. We, we enjoy reading and watching the drama of a courtroom. And usually that's because of two deeper impulses. We either want to watch this or read this in order to see an innocent man justly cleared of all charges such as watching or reading about Atticus Finch defending a falsely accused man in To Kill a Mockingbird. There's a part of us that really strongly desires to see the falsely accused, the wrongly accused, cleared of all charges for justice to be done. Or, or we want to watch a guilty party get what's coming to them, uh, such as the Villainous insurance company, great benefit, and John Grisham's The Rainmaker, right? These are stories that resonate with us because in every instance there's like hopelessness is a major theme here. The hopelessness of men who are falsely accused who are wondering if they're going to have to bear the punishment 
that they don't actually deserve or the hopelessness of men who are trying to, their best to take down an evil empire, but the evil empire operate like they're above the law. Will they ever be, will, will justice ever be served, right? And these legal dramas attempt to instill the hope of justice. All right, so I think that's why we enjoy reading, watching courtroom dramas. But the scriptures take all of this, and actually they do something surprising. They flip it on its head. Rather than delivering the fatal blow to the guilty, or seeking to clear the falsely accused and innocent, we see the genuinely guilty coming before the Lord and often then being declared innocent. Right? This is um, backwards. And, and it's good news to the reader. Right? Because if the Scriptures were to deliver the just verdict to the guilty in every instance, the entire point is we should not be cheering because we're all guilty. Like we're, we're reading in these instances about our trial and the hopelessness in this case doesn't come as one attempting to rightly accuse a guilty person, a guilty party who's offended us or offended others deeply. Nor does it come as a falsely accused or innocent person who's potentially facing punishment for something we didn't do. But rather it comes as a people who internally know of our guilt. We internally know that we're guilty. Those who have actually offended an innocent party, those who falsely accuse others rather than acknowledging the truth behind our guilt, and those who actually deserve just punishment. So rather than asking, how can we see justice done against someone who's offended us or um, created so many victims in their wake, rather than asking how we can find justice done as a result of our innocence, the hopelessness in our story comes by way of this question. What do we do about our legitimate, legitimate guilt before the Lord? What do we do if it's true that we're guilty? Like, what do we do when we justly deserve a guilty verdict and sentencing? That is the question that the Scriptures pose to us. What can be done of our circum- in our midst of those circumstances? And this is precisely the question that Zechariah 3 now sets out to ask. So here we have, in the book of Zechariah, as we continue to make our way through this minor prophet together, here we have the fourth vision of a series of eight visions. And all of, all of these visions describe, as we said the last th- few weeks, what it looks like for Israel to turn from their sin and to turn toward God. To turn toward him. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, right? Return to the Lord. And the Lord has made several promises along the way at this point that I think it's useful for us to remember before we look at our text. He promised that he'll return to his people, right? He promised that he's going to upend the surrounding world that stands opposed to him. There's going to be this great reversal in which the world that prospers, the world that stands against God that prospers, will be judged. And Israel who was just judged, will prosper. The people of God will prosper. So there's this reversal happening. He's promised the overflowing of his glory, a future coming kingdom that's much much greater than the kingdom that Israel is anticipating, overflowing with glory for all eternity, a Jerusalem without walls that reaches every tribe, tongue, and and nation, 
with good news, right? So he's promised all of this. He's also said that the means by which Israel will prosper is through holy living, temple work, right? Um, in, the, in the surrounding broken world, living as holy exiles, right? Okay, but there's a big problem that hasn't been addressed yet. There's this huge elephant in the room. As we spent more time on in previous weeks, Israel's pattern of sin brought this righteous judgment from God upon them and sent them into Babylonian exile for 70 years. So they're coming out of exile, but now as they come out, being called to return to the Lord, being called to holy living, being called to a righteous obedience in this world around them, being invited into an eternal kingdom, you guys, there's still this question about what's to be done related to their sin. What's to be done about their sin? Right? They're, they're coming out of exile, rescued from the Lord, right? It's like, imagine a criminal who is rescued from dire circumstances while he's committing this crime, right? He's rescued from these dire circumstances. And he's thankful for the rescue, but he knows he's eventually going to have to deal with his guilt. Something similar is happening here. They're coming out of exile, rescued from the Lord, rescued as we saw last week from his judgment, but they haven't had that awkward conversation yet about the reality that they are, they are still guilty, that guilt hasn't been dealt with. You know, and so uh, they have yet to stand trial. And that's what we see here. We see Israel's trial, the trial of the people of God in three different stages. Okay, we see prosecution and objection. This is classic courtroom drama, right? Prosecution and objection, defense and final verdict, and then finally the reasoning behind the ruling. That's what we're going to look at this morning. If you missed those, I'll go back through. So um, let's start with the first stage of the trial, verses 1 through 3. Look there with me now. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So we're introduced here in this first stage of the trial. We're introduced to all the main characters, all the major players of this courtroom drama, right? Um, there's, there's more happening, but here's kind of the, it's laying out the setting, and here's the main character. So uh, probably, again, this is, uh, this is the only of the eight visions in which the interpreting angel isn't present. We talked about this last week a little bit. Uh, because here we see things are actually explained by the Lord himself. So if you see this, this opening phrase, then he showed me, Joshua the high priest. I think that, that this word he most likely refers to the Lord because we end in chapter 2 with the Lord speaking. And now we begin chapter 3 as the, as the visions move forward with the Lord showing. He's showing Zechariah this um, new vision. And so the first character we see in this courtroom is, is the Lord. And he's the judge. He's the judge in the courtroom, okay? Second, we see Joshua the high priest. All right, then he, the Lord, showed me Joshua the high priest. Who is he? Well, he's, he's apparently something of a prominent historical figure in this early period post-exile. So his appearance in this vision is quite a big deal. He's, he's identified as the head of the priestly family, the high priest. And, and it's important, I think, for us to understand this text. It's important for us to remember, to understand. The high priest was the one, 
when the temple was built, right, he was the one who would once a year, once a year, go into the most holy place in the temple to offer a blood sacrifice of an animal to atone for all the people's sin. Once a year. So he went into this holy of holies for the people, on behalf of the people, as a representative of the people to um, offer this sacrifice on their behalf to atone for for sin, to stand before God. So he's a representative. We're going to see him mentioned again in chapter 6. I think he's likely the same Joshua figure. I I think he is. The same Joshua figure that we see throughout Ezra, introduced in Ezra 3, Um, As the story is told of Israel returning from exile, we see that Joshua, the high priest character. But the point here in the vision is that as the high priest, the one who's responsible to administer the sacrifices on behalf of the people of God, the one who's to go into the most holy place once a year to offer this sacrifice to atone for sin, he now, so he stands as a representative for all the people, and in this case, he's being accused before the courtroom. Charges are brought against him. He's the defendant, and and actually, the charges against him are serious. They're quite serious. If the high priest is unclean, like think about the imagery here, right? So if the high priest, who's supposed to enter into the Holy of Holies in pure vestments, dressed a certain way, uh, following the ceremonial law in which uh, he can come into the Holy of Holies as a representative of God's people, right? If he's unclean, and the people are unclean, How are they to become clean again that they might worship God, that they might have communion with him, right? That they might return to him? So there's this call, return to me, return to me. Well, they're all unclean, and their representative who goes into the Holy of Holies is also unclean in this text. It's a serious issue. How might they participate in this future coming kingdom? But he's standing before, uh, so he's standing there, Joshua the high priest, but he's standing before his advocate, the text tells us. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Uh, this phrase, standing before, is used throughout the Old Testament to describe legal proceedings coming before a judge, right? Okay, so we see this, this language again. But in this case, he's not just coming before the judge in guilt. He's coming before the judge in guilt with a representative, with legal representation and, and it's here that we again see this figure of the angel of the Lord. If you remember from chapter 1, we talked about this Old Testament figure. The angel of the Lord, and both here and in chapter 1, how is he described? He's described as a mediator between God and man. In chapter 1, do you remember? He was the lead rider on the horse out front who, who was a mediator for God's people by pleading with God that he would be merciful. He, he acknowledged the people's sin was legitimate. That God's anger was righteous, but he also mediated by pleading with the Lord to have mercy on his people. And we see also here him mediating as an advocate for the guilty. Joshua is standing before the judge, but the point is, he doesn't stand alone. He's not standing alone. He has serious representation. He's an advocate at his side. Finally, we see the accuser. Actually, the advocate's in front of him. So, Finally, we see the accuser, the lead accuser, the lead prosecutor, who's none other than Satan himself. Okay, it's, it's interesting because this word for Satan, it is used in the Old Testament as a proper name, identifying one particular uh, villain, okay, the ultimate deceiver, 
the one who wants to derail God's people. But this word translated Satan throughout the Old Testament, hasatan, it literally just means accuser, right? And so here we see, what do we see? We see just a word that means accuser, one who, is, who, who accuses others. So here we see Satan. Actually, this is absolutely Satan here. We see Satan living in line with his identity, right? He's bringing an accusation against Joshua. And, and so we should remember, listen, the text is not disputing Joshua's guilt. It's not like Satan is this lead prosecutor trying to derail an innocent man. Or we need to remember this. Um, look, at, look at verse 3. It leaves no question, no doubt, as to Joshua's guilt. Now Joshua was standing before the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. So he's standing before the angel of the Lord, standing before the judge, and he's clothed in his own filth is the idea. Like the sense of this word filth... Uh, it's actually related to excrement and vomit. I'm not trying to be crass. That's the actual sense of the word. And, and the idea here is that it's, a, it's, a, it's his own filth that really clothes his garments. You know, like his offensive odor is not because someone else came along and smeared their filth on his clean and pure clothes, but rather he is encased in his own filth. And as we will see, there's nothing he's able to do about it for himself. Like, in fact the more he would try to clean himself up, the dirtier he gets. That's the idea behind this word. And so I bring that up here after mentioning Satan just to say, listen, listen. So if you're watching a movie, all right, Amy and I read, I watched a, a courtroom drama together just recently. It was excellent, right? Because there's this guilty man on trial, and so you're rooting for him to be exposed for this fraud that he is, right? Um, but, but imagine watching a movie in which uh, you have a guilty party like that, who's offended an innocent party standing trial. And the prosecuting attorney begins his accusations to the court. Who's normally the good guy in that story? The prosecuting attorney, right? You're, you're cheering on the prosecution to expose the guilt of this individual. And yet in this case, the Bible, again, it flips it on its head. Because while Satan's bringing these charges, and certainly there's truth in Satan's charges related to the legitimate guilt of the one standing trial, his prosecution is condemned in no uncertain terms. It's condemned outright. Right, look, verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. So Satan doesn't even have a chance to open his mouth and make his introductory comments, his opening, his opening uh, words and remarks. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Where Satan represents the prosecution, here we see the defense objecting, right? Here we see an objection from the defense. So we might read this and think this is actually the judge speaking. It's the judge condemning a prosecuting attor attorney who's kind of overstepped their bounds. Maybe that's the case, but here's what I think. I think since this speech is said not only to come from the Lord, so it says in verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, so the speech comes from the Lord, but also it's directed to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Because that's the case, I, I think what we're looking at is the advocate speaking on the Lord's behalf. The mediator in the story, the defense attorney, the angel of the Lord, raises an immediate objection to Satan's prosecution. He rebukes the underhanded nature of Satan's prosecution by pointing at the reality of what the Lord actually desires to happen in the lives of his people. Like the, 
The Lord has this desire, this decree from eternity past, and Satan's completely ignoring it, and very intentionally. Look at it again. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has what? Who has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. The Lord has chosen his people. Rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Do you not understand, Satan, the, the saving desire of the Lord? In other words, you're bringing nothing but condemnation while at the same time conveniently leaving out the reality that the Lord has purposed from eternity past to save this defendant, to pluck him out of the fire, to create for himself a people for his own possession. See, Satan's intentions are not for justice to be done. Quite the opposite, actually. Satan cares nothing for ju justice. All Satan wants is for the world to burn. He wants retribution. He wants the world to burn. But the Lord purposes to save, to pluck up from the fire a people for himself. So that's prosecution and objection. A condemnation from Satan against God's elect, against those whom God has chosen for himself. And, and we see now the saving purposes that the advocate is referencing. Spelled out more clearly in verses 4 through 7. Let's start in verses 4 through 5 because here we have this uh, defense and final verdict. Okay, so the angel of the Lord, verse 4, and the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Okay, here we see both in some respect the, the, the defense, really the defense strategy, and the final verdict. And sentencing kind of rolled into one because, it's, you know, it's interesting to note here at the front end that this, this one who's interceding, the one advocating, the one mediating, he's also the one in, in the drama who has the authority to pardon isn't that interesting? And we already saw this angel of the Lord, he has the authority to speak for God, to speak on God's behalf. But his authority doesn't end there. Actually, he's also given authority to pardon because, listen, Joshua is unable to make himself clean. He's unable to remove his own filth, but the angel of the Lord has the authority to command that his filthy garments be removed and to make this statement. Think about the authority that, the, that this angel of the Lord must possess. Behold, I have taken away your, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, speaking on behalf of the Lord. Right? It's such a great picture because I think we're meant to imagine the anger and seething of Satan who's brought judgment against Joshua because of Joshua's filth, the legitimate filth and uncleanness. And now he watches as that filth disappears, as, as all of his accusations kind of melt away, right? Um, not because Joshua has somehow worked up the effort to make it happen, but because his advocate is doing it on his behalf for him. And so Satan's beside himself, perhaps screaming, unfair. He was unclean by his own merit. Judge him. Judge him. Pleading for our judgment and condemnation, but, but, but also watching his case against Joshua, the high priest, disappear before his very eyes. It reminds me of Narnia. It's these Narnian stories in which you know, the white witch 
wants nothing but Edmund's destruction, right? And she's incensed by the idea that Aslan might come and make him pure, make him right again. God's people were absolutely guilty of a serious offense before the Lord, but this vision shows them how that guilt is resolved is absolved, right? Like Joshua is no longer wearing his filthy garments. He's no, he no longer possesses his iniquity. It's been taken from him, and in its place, he's been dressed in pure vestments and a clean turban. This is clothing in the ancient Near East associated with high standing. It's also a, a temple clothing associated with clothing for the high priest in the temple. So look at the language here. Look at the play on words. Literally, it reads, remove the filthy garments from upon him Behold, I have taken your iniquity from upon you. So both of these things, the removal of the filthy garments and the removal of sin, they're the same thing. Like It's directly stated in the text that, that the removal of filthy garments represents the removal of his sin, his iniquity before the Lord. And now he stands before the court as pure as his advocate. He stands before the court as innocent as the one defending him. It's quite striking. The word taken, right? So taken from upon you. I've taken your iniquity from upon you. This word taken, it's used throughout the Old Testament. Always, always, always refers to forgiveness. So let me give you three examples. 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, because I think this gives us a, a, a really helpful parallel, a really helpful example of where else we see this, right? So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. That, that word put away, it's the same word here, taken away. 2 Samuel 24, 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. 1 Chronicles 21, 8. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in all that I have done in this thing. But now, <coughs> excuse me, please take away the iniquity of your servant. Same phrase. Take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So there, here's this king. Who's the king? He's the representative of the people. The one through whom the Lord said he would establish his covenant, and yet he recognizes that he's unclean. That he's guilty of sin. And, and his only plea is that his sin would be taken from upon him. And here you see the same thing. Joshua, the high priest, representative of the people, and his need is the same. The people have the same need. We all have the same need, all of us. And Satan is more than pleased to demand our condemnation and judgment, and yet we have this advocate before the Father who declares us innocent. God's people have this advocate before the Father who makes us right again, even though we're guilty. It's, it's really striking, and... and, and this innocence changes the way we live. It changes our trajectory entirely. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charges of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This new identity, because that's really what he's been clothed in. He has a new identity. It doesn't come from him. It comes from outside of him. This new identity, the sheer grace of God in doing for Joshua what Joshua could not do for himself results in a new way of life. Joshua is cleansed by God 
And then he's immediately commissioned by God in this vision to, to serve him, to serve as the high priest when the temple's rebuilt, okay? He's being made a priest. He's commissioned to obedience and holiness. And yet, like, we need to remember the order in which this happens. Because if we get this wrong, we get the whole thing wrong. And let me tell you, I think, I think the, the tragedy with the way that we often use, read our Bibles, because I think of the condition of the human heart, our default mode is always going to be to read the Scripture the opposite way in terms of the order. So we got to get the order right, right? So listen to how Anthony Pedersen describes the order of how this happens. He says, Joshua does not have to obey in order to be cleansed and accepted. Joshua doesn't have to obey. It's not like, you know, this is, it's important, this is an important point. I don't want to just rush past it. I think he's intentional. The advocate doesn't turn toward his client in the courtroom. Say, look, I've, I spoke with the judge. We had a sidebar. We're willing to let you off down the road. You know, we're willing to remove this filth. We're, we're willing to, to work to restore you again. But, you know, it's going to take a lot of work on your part. You know, you've got to do some community service. You're going to have to do some time. You're going to have to do some time. You're going to have to do some community service along the way. And then you're going to have to be on parole where we'll be watching you. And if you clear all of that, well, then, you, you know, we'll... You can be fully restored. That's not actually what happens at all. If that was the case, Joshua would be in a whole lot of trouble as we're about to see. Joshua doesn't have to obey in order to be cleansed and accepted. It happens the other way. So, so listen, listen to what Pedersen continues to write. There's nothing Joshua can, can do to be forgiven and, and cleansed. He cannot even offer sacrifices to be cleansed since his clothing marks him as unfit for priestly service. His cleansing is an act of God's grace. Joshua is commissioned to serve because he's been accepted. By God. Religion says, Pedersen continues, if I just obey enough, then I will be accepted. If I just go to church, say my prayers, sing songs, do enough good works, God will be impressed and bless me. The Bible says there's nothing people can do to make themselves worthy. Salvation is by God's grace alone, completely undeserved. Good works are, are to be done in response to his forgiveness and cleansing. Having been forgiven and cleansed, Joshua has a responsibility to serve. And this service involves obedience. God does not request Joshua's service. He demands it. God's grace is not a license to live as one pleases. It's a freedom to live as God pleases. You hear that? God's grace is not a license to live as one pleases. It's a freedom to live as God pleases. God gives you a new identity in which you're now free to obey. You're free to have a new totally new, transformed life, becoming more and more shaped into his likeness. Joshua is cleansed, he's clothed, and then he's commissioned to a new way of life. Complete redemption. Okay, but the question is, how is this possible? See, this, this serves, this section of text serves, both as the kind of, I've said before, the defense and final verdict all rolled into one, right? It is the defense strategy. In other words, imagine the defense attorney turning toward Joshua what other, what other strategy does he have for Joshua? You know, like, imagine him turning to Joshua. Joshua's covered in his own filth. Absolutely. And again, I'm not trying to be crass, but this is the idea. He's pasted in his own excrement and vomit, all of his own doing. The more he tries to make himself clean, the dirtier and more repulsive he gets. The offensive odor's filling the courtroom. It's burning the nostrils of the judge, who's particularly offended by the odor. And um, there's, no, there's no ignoring it. You know, 
everyone in the courtroom. It's just, it's filling the courtroom. And he tries to turn back. So the angel of the Lord looks at Joshua, his advocate, right? He, he turns back to the judge, and he tries to argue, actually, he's not that bad, you know? He's pretty clean. We could, I, we might be able to do something about some of this. The, that kind of defense is impossible. Like, there's not going to be any ignoring it. There's not going to be any, like, glorifying this or making it out to be less than it act. The problem actually is, no, his defense isn't actually to have Joshua take the stand and speak on his own behalf. That would be idiotic, truly. His defense has nothing to do with anything Joshua has done, but only what is done on Joshua, what he does on Joshua's behalf. Right? That's his plea. His plea is his work that he's done. His plea before the judge is, look, look at this work that I've done on behalf of, of Joshua. Right? But this also brings up another nagging question. Does God not care about justice? Joshua was guilty, right? So does this advocate not care about justice? Is Satan the one in the room concerned with justice because he wants condemnation of the truly, genuinely guilty person? Because here's a guilty man before the court. His guilt is well documented. The evidence is demonstrable. It's factual. There's no doubt of it. So how can justice be done if he's actually declared innocent? And that brings us finally to the, court's clo- the judge's closing remarks. Um, it, it describes for us the reason for his ruling, thirdly. The reason for his ruling, right? Because we've seen this, this uh, prosecution and immediate objection, then this defense and final verdict. But now we see the reason. It's like when, when the Supreme Court rules on a case, they always issue this written decision that describes their jurisprudence, their judicial philosophy on a particular case, why they ruled the way they ruled is governed by the Constitution. And in the same way, the Lord releases his decision, shows us his jurisprudence. On what basis is this just? Verses 8 through 10. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There's some debate about some of the components here, but here's what I think is going on. These friends who sit before Joshua, in this context, the best interpretation, as far as I can tell, the majority interpretation, is that these are his fellow priests. So we have sitting here the men who are charged with priesthood, and Joshua is to serve, uh, he's placed as the high priest in authority over them, essentially, in this set of verses. But these men are assigned to one another. They're assigned to Joshua. These men collectively are assigned that the Lord will do something on behalf of his people, that the Lord will bring his servant, the branch. Who is this character? Who is the servant, the branch? These men you see are a sign. How is this just? Well, we have to understand that these men are a sign of, so, of something that is yet to come. Something that hasn't happened yet. Okay, but, but, but that, that's on its way. All right. And we need to understand who this person is, the servant, the branch, how these priests are a sign of his coming. Well, throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the prophets, this word servant is used in a very particular way, right? So if you, if you start in Genesis... The servant is meant, is, it describes Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, Moses, right? Okay, so these servants who pointed forward to a servant yet to come. Like Abraham came, but he wasn't the promised seed of Genesis 3, right? We went through this when we went through Genesis. Then, oh, maybe it's Isaac, but Isaac fails. Oh, okay, maybe it's Jacob, but Jacob's not a candidate at all at any point, right? And so we go through this, all of these people, and we see failure after failure after failure after failure, but they all point forward to a coming servant. And the way that that servant is described, and by the time you get to Isaiah, is in terms of a, a suffering figure, one who suffers on behalf of his people. Similarly, this word branch, shoot, describes this one who's to come, this branch who, who comes out of the line of David to save his people. We see this in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. It's common metaphor for the Messiah in the Old Testament. That there's this one who is to come who will save his people, right? And, and these priests are a sign of his coming. They're a sign of his coming because these priests, what do they do? They do this work that's related to making the people of God clean again. They do this work of, for, of, of through sacrifice, through representing God's people, uh, this work of seeing forgiveness extended, atonement extended. And here we see also these priests are a sign of his coming because most likely these priestly garments contain, you know, I, I think that this stone here that is set before Joshua is most likely, especially given the context of clothing in this chapter, the unpure vestments, the filthy garments to begin this section, and then the pure vestments knowing that the high priest had to be dressed a very particular way in order to go into the Holy of Holies, that really functioned in a way as like Phil Riken calls it an ID card, uh, in which he would declare, it would declare to the Lord, um, I, I am holy, I can be here, right? It's not on my work, but on the basis of work that's already done for me, okay? Okay, so it's the idea of these garments. So I think, most likely, this stone with seven eyes, if, you're, if your text says eyes, don't think like seven eyes blinking up on the stone. I, I think it's talking about seven facets, like a gemstone, uh, similar to what you would see the priests wearing, these gemstones. And in this case, I think it's, it's, it's a sign. It's like, there's a lot of debate here, but I think these priests are a sign of the coming shoot, and the gemstone is this reminder. To who? To the Lord. It's a reminder to the Lord of this priestly work. It's a reminder to him of his promise to remove the sin of the land in a single day. A single day, you guys. This is a reference to the Day of Atonement, right, which we talked about earlier, this day in which the priest once a year would enter the Holy of Holies and make this sacrifice. Uh, you know, all of God's people would be declared innocent by way of a sacrifice. But, but listen, God's people continued. What was wrong with the, the Day of Atonement? Well, nothing with the Lord's work was wrong on the Day of Atonement. What was wrong was the people continued to fall back into sin and rebellion against him, and his anger would be rekindled, and the cycle would continue. But here God is reminded of his promise to remove the people's sin, once for all, in a single day, through the work of this suffering servant, this branch who is to come. The reason for his ruling is because justice will be done. It will be done. All right? It'll be done on this branch. How? Well, okay. The, we'll get there in a minute. But that day, the text says, will be so good that God's people will want everyone to know about it. Verse 10, in that day declares the Lord, in that day where our sins are forgiven once for all. Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under the vine and under his fig tree. It's here that we see the reason for the ruling because ultimately the text draws out two pictures for us. Remember, 
this angel of the Lord is a mediator between God and humanity, right? He stands as a mediator between God and humanity. Jesus Christ is described in, this new, in the New Testament, how? As a mediator between God and humanity. I've already argued at great length, I think this angel of the Lord is this figure that not only um, stands as a figure of Yahweh in the Old Testament, but is also a figure that is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, as I believed we saw in chapter 1, but we see again here in chapter 3. Jesus, God the Son, functions as our advocate, standing before the Father on our behalf, declaring us innocent while we're guilty. So that's the first picture of the text, but it doesn't necessarily answer our question about justice because it's like, well, that's just the story of the text, right? So why is justice being done here? Well, that we, we see the second picture. And the second picture is actually of a true and better Joshua the high priest. Here's why it's just. There will come a true and better Joshua the high priest, one who is already spotless and blameless, one who does not stand charged before the court but stands in pure vestments already, One who's standing before God was perfect. One who'd lived the perfect priestly life that Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3 had failed to live. One that all of us had failed to live. Where Joshua was unable to even offer sacrifices on behalf of his people because of his guilt, Jesus became the sacrifice for God's people despite his innocence. Where Joshua was a brand Plucked out of the fire, Jesus is the branch who lovingly, willingly threw himself into the fire on our behalf that we might be rescued out. Willingly going to the cross, bearing the punishment that we deserve so that we could have life in him, removing our iniquity in a single day at the cross, a single day. Jesus, the, new, the, the, the Greek word for Joshua, the true, true, true and better Yeshua, Joshua, cleansing, clothing, and commissioning us to proclaim this work to the nations. And because of what he's done, this work is a work that we want to do. Like every one of us should want to invite our neighbors to come under the vine and fig tree of this covenant. Why are we a church that wants to be uniquely evangelistic in nature? Why are we a church that wants to be a church, wants to be a home for skeptics to come and ask questions that they have about God and, and life, right? And like to wrestle with things with us. Because people, we believe people uniquely need Jesus. And the idea here is... We read this text, we're restored again to us the joy of our salvation. We have the joy of our salvation restored again and we want others to know. How can we know that this is our story and not want others to know? To rest in this covenant, to rest in the branches of the forgiveness that God Almighty has extended to us in Christ. And yet there's two barriers, I think, that keeps us from this kind of work and understanding of life and forgiveness. Listen, there's two barriers First barrier is that we don't think we're sinful. It's really hard for us to believe that we're guilty. Right? And so what happens? Well, we think that we've, in some sense, been redeemed in part because we made ourselves clean. And when that happens, what happens? What's, what, what has to happen? Well, if I became holy, at least in part because there was something about me that made me a good candidate for Christianity, whereas those other people out there, they're not as good candidates as I am, if that's the case, how am I, what's the difference between me and, and the person who doesn't believe? 
Right? I was a little bit better. I was a little bit, I had a little bit of a softer heart. I'm doing, th- you know, and then pride starts to set in. There was something about me, right? So I'm better than others around me, right? So now pride starts to set in. And what happens? Selfishness starts to set in. Right? So when we, we try to clean ourselves, when, when we think we're able to clean ourselves, we actually make ourselves dirty. <laughs> because we grow in this pride and selfishness and this idea that we saved ourselves, right? That's one barrier, is that we don't believe this refrain that we're guilty. Another barrier, though, is that we believe that we're guilty, but we don't believe there's a Savior in the universe who could save us. Now, I've heard people say that. I've heard people actually express the sentiment that, like, boy, I'm glad that Jesus can save you, but he sure can't save me. Like, I am way too far gone. So I might as well just, you know, and, and what do both things lead us to? Either ignoring the refrain that actually we are guilty or not believing that Jesus could possibly stand in our place. Take our place at the cross and grant us life. They, they both lead, I guess I'll just live life however I want. They both lead to a life of, of filth. It's not, good. it's not for our good. A few years back, Shane and Shane wrote this song powerful, called Embracing Accusation. I want to read it for you as we close. They say, the father of lies, Satan, is coming to steal, kill, and destroy all of my hopes of being good enough. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah. He's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed, that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation embracing accusation. Could the father of lies be telling the truth of God to me tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed that I'm cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation. So here we see this picture of Satan, the accuser, preaching this One aspect of the truth, that we're sinful. But listen to this. Oh, the devil singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the first verse so conveniently over me, he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. He sings this first verse repeatedly, but he leaves out the refrain, and we need both We need to acknowledge our sinfulness before the Lord and come to him for his mercy, but his mercy is real and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we proclaim this message to one another weekly. We proclaim this message when we gather that we might have the joy of our salvation reestablished, that we might scatter and and share with others. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so we proclaim it to one another here at the table. This meal is a meal for believers. The cup representing the blood of Christ shed for us. The bread representing the body of Christ broken for us, standing in our place as our advocate. And it's there that we see the justice of God done for us. Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Justice is done through the person of Christ, through his body broken, his blood shed. So I invite you forward to take these elements back to your seats, and we will partake together.